Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 22. Uh, this week, we have a full house. We have Mark, Sarah, Gladys, and myself. We also have two special guests, Craig Nelson and Laurent Gray from the Azure Red Team. But before we get to Craig and Laurent, let's take a look at the news. Uh, Mark, why don't we start with you? So there's um, a couple things uh, that caught my eye this week. Um, but first, I will do my standard soapbox of please pay attention to ransomware on the human operated ransomware because it is destructive, um, a high profit model for the attackers, et cetera. And so we'll include an additional link to that guidance um, in there. On the, on the news front, password monitor. Um, so within uh, Microsoft Edge, there's a new feature that's uh, pretty slick. It's based on a homomorphic encryption, which Michael, I suspect you probably know much more about than I do. Um, but what it does is it allows uh, folks to see without risking the knowledge of their passwords and exposing that, that, um, hey, Microsoft found through our various channels to the dark markets and other compromised password stores, et cetera, that your password is um, potentially at risk um, and it allows you to, to detect that for uh, for within the Edge browser, which I thought was pretty darn cool. Um, and so a really good application of technology to solve um, a real world problem. And then um, switching over to the Azure side, uh, DDoS, uh, there's a uh, blog post, which we'll put link in the show notes that talked about some of the learnings and observations from our Azure DDoS uh, service and capability and what uh, they saw over the course of 2020. And you know, a couple of things kind of stood out for me, you know, like the, the largest uh, attack that we did see was around the, the one terabit per second rate, um, which was pretty impress impressive. There's also a, a reflection attack around 1.6 terabits per second, which just you know boggles the mind in terms of sheer volume. And some of the interesting, other interesting things I noticed was that you know a lot of these attacks tended to be on the shorter side. I'm not sure if that was simply because these were the protected services, and so the attackers tended to give up pretty quick um, because it, it wasn't worth the effort. Um, haven't uh, quite gotten into that level of depth, but you know definitely some interesting uh, learnings here and what the the DDoS um, attack landscape looks like uh, from that perspective. And so the last thing was um, that I noticed was around uh, something called dangling DNS which is when um, someone can claim an IP address or a DNS record that you're, you're still pointing to you know, because the resource gets destroyed. There's a, a good explanation that's out there on the doc site that, um, that we'll also include the link for. Um, this is a problem that allows attackers to effectively impersonate your website, your company's website, because they can take advantage that it's still pointing at some IP address or some, uh, some other DNS record that uh, the attacker is, is later able to claim. From that perspective, uh, Azure Defender for App Service just added some dangling DNS protections in there uh, to help with this um, because it kind of is a resource specific uh, type of problem. And so definitely check that out uh, and uh, get your uh, app services protected with the Azure Defender for, uh, for App Services. So it's funny that you brought up um, homomorphic encryption. So a friend of mine uh, in Microsoft Research, Josh Benelow, is uh, actually an expert in homomorphic encryption. And he and I have had many a discussion about, about the techniques and the technologies. Um, Josh's experience is primarily, you know, he's a dyed-in-the-wool cryptographer, but uh, one of his areas of expertise is election-related cryptography. And one of the cool things about some of the kinds of homomorphic encryption are that you can count um, who's voted for A and who's voted for B without decrypting the data. So you can actually perform some mathematical operations over the cipher, essentially the ciphertext. 
if you think you understand cryptography, uh, just go and read one of Josh's papers and you'll realize just how little you actually know. But yeah, that's a homomorphic encryption. It's really cool stuff. And it's good to see that it's being used for practical solutions. Cool. So for my news for this week, um, I've got a couple of things. First one is Azure Firewall Premium is now in public preview. So that is awesome uh, because it's basically a premium SKU of Azure Firewall and it has new capabilities that uh, people have definitely been asking for. So for example, uh, we have TLS inspection, we have signature-based intrusion detection and prevention system or IDPS. And I know that a lot of customers have asked for that in Azure Firewall. We can do URL filtering, and we can also filter outbound access um, on the internet based on categories, which is pretty cool. So um, if you wanted to uh, deploy Azure Firewall Premium, you should now see that in the UI as an option. So go check that one out. And there's a lot more I could say about it, but probably best to just go and look in the show notes and see what is happening there. And then uh, something that Offa mentioned in our episode last week, we now have a what's new page for Azure Sentinel. And uh, I thought actually I should touch on what is new in Sentinel at the moment. So the analytics rule wizard is looking much nicer now. You can write and edit queries and it will actually tell you uh, if it has real-time query validation. So if you're writing a query that doesn't work, it will tell you. And we finally got an Azure Sentinel PowerShell module an official one. Uh, if you have been using Sentinel a lot, you'll know that the PowerShell module that we've been using for a while was done by a third party, but now we have an official Microsoft one as well. The last thing I wanted to talk about is a dedicated log analytics cluster. Um, Sentinel sits on top of a log analytics cluster, so you have to have log analytics underneath Sentinel for it to work. Uh, but the reason this is cool is because if you have a dedicated log analytics cluster, um, you can have multiple workspaces, up to 100, sitting on that one cluster. And it means that you uh, can actually share your your capacity reservation amongst all the workspaces rather than having to put them on each individual workspace. Now, there are a couple of catches here. You do have to ingest over one terabyte a day into your, well, you don't have to ingest over one terabyte a day, but if you create a dedicated cluster, you will be committing to an ingestion rate of one terabyte a day. So you probably want to be up in that region of ingestion with all your workspaces before you actually want to commit to this. Um, and dedicated clusters also allow you to use things like uh, customer managed keys, lockbox, uh, double encryption, and uh, running queries across Sentinel workspaces. They also work really well too, um, because of course you've got dedicated hardware, so they do run um, a little bit faster. And yeah, that's all my news. So I have a few things that sort of piqued my interest this week. Um, the first one is uh, resource instance rules for access to Azure storage is now in public preview. So that's a bit of a mouthful. Let's sort of explain briefly what it is. <clears throat> this allows you to say restrict access to a storage account such that you may have a firewall in place. By firewall, I mean lowercase f firewall. So for example, IP restrictions and that sort of stuff. So you can restrict it to say, you know, that Databricks over there, for example, can access me, can access my, my storage account. Um, it does require the use of system managed identities, um, but essentially it allows you to poke a hole in the firewall without poking a hole in the firewall, which is really nice. The second item I want to talk about 
and this is really because I'm just not a huge fan of ARM templates. I mean, I understand, you know, this is as your resource manager. Um, you know, they use JSON to represent um, all the resources and the settings and configuration information that you want to use when you're deploying something um, in Azure. It can be quite lengthy. Um, they can be hard to read, you know, so, and I'm just not a fan of things that are hard to read. Uh, you know, being someone who's been developing software for a long time, I like code that's easy to read. So when I'm looking at an ARM template, you know, it normally ends up being all you know, quite dizzying and complex. And, and unfortunately, from my perspective, I think it become, can become a little bit easier to add errors. So we've been working on this new project. Its uh, name is Project Bicep. Uh, it dawned on me at 3 a.m. last night. ARM templates, Bicep. Okay, you, you get it? ARM, Bicep. The best way of looking at a bicep is it's a more straightforward way of writing or declaring configuration information for deployment into Azure. It's a lot easier to read, uh, significantly easier to read than, than a, a JSON file. It is in, in alpha, uh, which means that, you know, there could be breaking changes. Uh, I'm working on a project right now, a healthcare uh, organization, and we're using bicep uh, for deploying this thing into, into Azure, into, into our subscriptions. And I'm, I'll tell you right now, it is significantly easier than writing ARM templates. Significantly easier. So that's Project Bicep. Uh, go ahead and go ahead and check it out. The other thing I want to talk about that I'm really excited about is we have a new exam. Uh, it's in beta. It's called uh, SC900, uh, Microsoft Security Compliance and Identity Fundamentals. The best way of thinking about this is imagine uh, AZ500, which is the, the you know the main security exam, but imagine if AZ500 and AZ900 got together and had a baby, that would be SC900. So it's a, a you know an introduction to you know security compliance and identity. Uh, I was fortunate enough to actually work on on this project um, over the last few months, and it's really exciting to see this because I think it will introduce a lot more people to you know the topics of security, compliance, and identity. And as we know, you know we need more people working in this area. Next news item is Azure API management now support certificates in Azure Key Vault in, as a general availability. Uh, it's been in preview for some time, uh, but now it's generally available. So you can store your certificates and the associated private keys um, in Azure Key Vault and access them from um, Azure API management. The last topic I wanted to bring up is uh, TypeScript 4.2 is now in release candidate. You may think, hang on, what's this got to do with security and Azure security? Uh, the, the reason why I brought this up is one of the nice things about TypeScript is that it's uh, it's it's strongly typed, and when you start to have large code bases, you really want the language to help you as much as possible. And I'll be honest with you, I don't like JavaScript. Never like JavaScript. I think it's a write-only language, especially when it comes to things like um, asynchronous execution. Uh, and the other reason why I don't like it from a you know, when you're doing massive code bases. It's loose typing um, can introduce many errors, uh, very, very subtle errors. And I just don't like that. I just don't like that at all. I think that you know the language should be flexible enough, but at the same time, it should be correct enough that it doesn't make it very easy to make mistakes like that. So TypeScript 4.2 is now in release candidate. Uh, if you've never played with TypeScript, if you're a JavaScript programmer, uh, have a look at TypeScript. Uh, it does transpile. Uh, in other words, it will essentially cross-compile from, from TypeScript to JavaScript. Support for it in Visual Studio Code is absolutely fantastic. Uh, it's also available in Sublime Text if that's your editor of choice. But yeah, go ahead and you know check it out if you haven't already looked at uh, looked at TypeScript. 
Hi, everyone. After our meeting with offer last week, I have been reading a lot about Azure Sentinel and going to those ninja courses. Uh, my reading was more uh, towards uh, how we can uh, use different technologies to deal with supply chain attack. Um, so I started uh, first uh, reviewing the uh, Sentinel material, but then I started going and reading about machine learning in this service called Azure Synapse. As we know, uh, machine le learning detection models can adapt to individual environments and, and changes in user behavior, application behavior, or any type of, of uh, uh, behavior that is happening in the environment. This is really cool because it, it can help reduce uh, the number of false positives and help it speed up uh, the identification of threats. Uh, so I was like, okay, uh, can it help uh, detect uh, changes in behavior on, on applications or things like that. So um, then I started thinking, okay, uh, if if we have a well interconnected solution that goes cross domain, and with with this mean, I mean, uh, we can see all identity information, endpoint data information, application network infrastructure, no matter which type of infrastructure is, uh, or, uh, or whether it's Microsoft uh, solution or not, uh, whether it's a third party type of solution. Can we correlate in real time data and capture these old be odd behaviors? Frankly, I don't have an answer yet, but I wanted to share these articles that I found really interesting. For example, uh, there was an article that uh, was named Bring Your Own uh, Machine Learning into Azure Sentinel, which uh, gives us step by step how to interconnect machine learning and use uh, Microsoft machine learning capabilities. In addition, uh, as I mentioned, there is this service that went uh, general ability uh, called Azure Synapse. Uh, for those of you uh, that do not know, Azure Synapse is an integration of SQL data warehouse with lots of machine learning and cognitive services capability. And what it's aiming is to provide analytic, analytical and predictive capabilities. In other words, if uh, bringing all this data integration together, uh, you will have data warehousing and the big data analytics to accelerate uh, time to insight. The article that I started reading uh, was called Harness Analytical and Predictive Power with Azure Synapse Analytics. But if you go all the way at the bottom, there's a different, like, I don't know, six, seven parts uh, to this article. And it was incredible, the capabilities that it's showing. So I recommend uh, reading it. And that's the news for me. Okay, so that wraps up the news. Uh, thanks everyone for that. Uh, I'd like to now turn our attention to our two special guests. We have Laurent Gray and Craig Nelson from the Azure Red Team. Uh, gents, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, how long have you been at Microsoft and what you do? Hey, how you doing? So my name is Laurent Gray. I'm on the Azure Red Team. I've been at Microsoft for a little over a year. So at the end of uh, October 2019 is when I started. I have some experience in offensive security uh, for about six years, seven years now. Um, I was originally in the Navy. I did 10 years in the Navy doing electronics, and then I moved over to uh, the Navy's offensive cyber billets. And uh, after that, I got out, and then I decided to be a pen tester, and now here I am as a red teamer. And thank you. I'm Craig Nelson, and I've been with Microsoft for 15 years. 
13 of those years have been focused on leading red and blue teams and building the capabilities that we're going to be talking about today. So I started in Office, then moved to Xbox, and finally to Azure, where I've been very fortunate to observe how security has evolved across each of these uh, cloud platforms. I've been on the front lines of, of responding to issues that have been in the headlines over the past many years, uh, but more importantly, focused behind the scenes on forward-looking security work to get ahead of the threats so they can impact Microsoft and Microsoft services. So I'm excited to share these experiences with you today, and thank you for the invite to the podcast. So I have to ask, so there's a term red team um, of which, you know, you guys are obviously members. There's red teaming. I've also heard the term blue teaming and of late purple teaming. So could you uh, give our listeners an overview of what, you know, what differentiates red, blue and purple teaming? So red teaming is about emulating the adversary, right? And uh, introducing a specific environment to uh, what would happen if an adversary uh, targets it and tries to compromise it. So think about red teaming as offense. Blue teaming is defense. And within uh, Microsoft, we have a lot of uh, services, federated services that uh, make up uh, the environment and uh, of, of Azure and Office. Uh, so there's uh, many blue teams with different levels of expertise uh, focused on you know, doing forensics at cloud scale. But also we look at uh, blue teaming as a role uh, across any uh, uh, service team in Microsoft. So if you're working on, for example, SharePoint or a function of Azure, you build that security uh, expertise. So you are part of the blue team when a security response is needed. Now, purple teaming uh, is, you know, by definition, kind of a mix of red and blue. And, and the way we look at it is uh, red and blue uh, sit together in the, in, the, in the same room and share information uh, as an attack is simulated. So this gives a very quick feedback loop uh, to the red team about what is working. Uh, it also gives a very quick feedback loop to the blue team about you know, what's working or not. So uh, from a purple team perspective, that allows you to speed the evolution even faster because you're dealing with common information. So uh, Azure Red Team's mission is through whatever methods necessary, the Azure Red Team influences security improvements by honest, accurate, and unbiased assessments of the assumed breach state of Azure. So I wanna break out a few things here. First, it starts with through whatever methods necessary. So this reflects our organizational buy-in to use uh, red teaming to emulate real adversaries and take the same path that they would in order to compromise uh, services within Azure. So I wanna be super clear that when I, when I talk about the adversarial perspective, right, my team is focused on executing against Microsoft owned and internal resources. We can't touch customer data at all. But the key point is we look at Azure like a real adversary would. Second thing to break out is uh, that we assess the assumed breach state of Azure. And this means that we spread our investments across protect, detect, and respond. And the red team is focused on driving evolution across all of those capabilities. So we wanna make sure that, uh, that from a protection perspective, that there are a few ways in Azure in the scenario that an attacker is able to compromise uh, part of Azure, we wanna make sure detections are as fast as possible. And then once that detection fires, we can respond. We can respond with precision and we can respond with speed. Our blue teams can kick out adversaries as fast as possible. That's what the red team is focused on emulating. 
And again, it's to drive that evolution of uh, the rapidly expanding cloud platform of Azure. So now let me uh, touch on our priorities. So there's three. First, and this is similar to what you would expect from on-premise infrastructure, you have to reduce your attack surface as much as possible. So when we think about Azure, uh, you know, that's a very, very broad attack surface, and there's a lot of new technologies that are in play. The key theme is you have to understand your attack surface and reduce it as much as possible. Second priority is to increase the costs for an attacker. So when a red team finds things, we want to make sure that those findings are addressed as soon as possible. If we see that a new feature could be built to uh, make it more difficult for uh, an attacker to be successful. So all of this ultimately nets out to increasing the cost of an attacker. You don't want an attacker to have a low cost there because at that point they'll be successful. So you really take it from that mindset, that economic mindset. And finally, the third priority is to you know, speed eviction capability. So when we're thinking about assume breach and we're thinking that you know, high skill, high focus adversaries can always be successful given enough time. We wanna make sure that detection is fast and the detection is, enables rapid eviction. So in terms of measuring success, it's pretty simple. First, we focus on the mean time to detect. So once an adversary takes an action, we want that detection to fire as soon as possible. If the detection fires uh, you know, many hours afterwards, at that point, the, the attacker will have more time to be able to uh, execute. And it's gonna be much harder to evict. And that takes us into the second measurement, which is mean time to eviction. So within uh, Azure Red Team, you know, we're incentivized to try to persist as long as possible. And this is the same thing that a real attacker would do. And that challenges uh, a, a service's ability to look through telemetry. It challenges the detections that are in place. And it, detection, it challenges the, uh, the, the responder's ability to execute the right functions, such as rolling credentials quickly, uh, to kick uh, the, uh, the, the red team out. So we want our mean time to detect to be as close to zero as possible. We also want our mean time to evict to be as close to zero as possible. And that's how we measure red team success. The thing that I really like is the comments you made about looking at protect, detect, and respond, like the full life cycle and really you know, having a red team sort of in your house to be able to, to test and stress each of those processes and make them better. Because I always think about like a better red team makes a better blue team makes a better real world defense. And so that, that's really cool. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that full explicit, you know, kind of goal setting piece. So the, the question that I have for you um, is, like, what other teams do you work with? Um, we heard, you know, from Alex uh, Dedonker last uh, last episode that um, you work quite a bit with the Strike team. So can you talk about kind of your perspective on that and any other internal teams that you work with? Yeah. So Strike, which is uh, internal Microsoft training, is a very valuable partner. And first, when we talk about uh, you know emulating an adversary, so um, we work with Strike to communicate with engineers across the organization so we can instill the attacker mindset into day-to-day -day engineering decisions. So we want uh, engineers to understand how an attacker uses identity be, to be successful. We want uh, our engineers to understand the value of isolation. So when the engineers understand the value 
and they make different decisions by default. And that's ultimately a very important step of hardening your security posture over time. So I would highly recommend that, uh, that red teams are as transparent as possible, even though sometimes the results you know, are very sensitive. It's important to minimize and shape them so you can engage uh, engineers so they too have attacker mindset. So what are the top things that as a red team, what do you look for when you're doing red teaming exercises? The thing that I, I hope most people recognize is that red teams that work on premises really have uh, techniques and tactics that translate to cloud environments. So for example, when you look for things on a domain, you may look for identities or misconfigured services. And those same concepts of identities and services and permissions translates up into the cloud. So for on a domain, you may look for a user that has too much access, or you may look for services that are misconfigured that allow users to access them. Or you may look for services that have weak passwords and things like that. The direct translation from on-prem to a cloud environment is there. So some of the things that we may look for and not generally in from a, you know, not a, anything particularly special, but the things that you would find in cloud misconfigurations across uh, any cloud provider, right? So you may look for passwords that may be just sitting around where they're not supposed to be, or things like storage accounts that are open, have too many permissions, you can download data or things like that. So uh, the, the biggest way that I, I, I sort of break down looking for uh, vulnerabilities in the clouds is that if you break things down into identities, uh, roles and permissions and resources, then you can try to find uh, your way around each one of those individually and then sort of bring those uh, ideas together. Yeah, I mean, that's a, obviously a very small list of uh, potential vulnerabilities that you could find in, in any environment. You know, historically, uh, over the years, I've sort of looked on the uh, common weakness enumeration for sort of a more complete list of vulnerabilities. It would be interesting over time to understand how many of the items in the CWE apply in a cloud environment and how many don't, but I'm sure that the majority do. But yeah, thanks for that. It's always interesting to look at, you know, to understand what sort of vulnerabilities you're looking for or potential weaknesses that you're looking for in, uh, in, in Azure. Yeah, Michael, yeah, I, want to, I want to point out, because you know, many think about red teaming, you think about O-Days, they think about uh, you know, just the red team having all these magical ways to be able to get into an environment. And I want to re reflect back to a famous video that uh, Rob Joyce from NSA put out at uh, a USNIC conference uh, many years ago. I remember very clearly something he said. He said, look, everyone thinks that high-end attackers are sitting on bags of zero days, and it's not like that at all. And that is so important to recognize. You know, 80% of the problem is about the fundamentals. And I would also say that fundamentals uh, are the things that matter the most. That has to be the highest priority. So when you look at, you know, driving credential hygiene, uh, not only for your users, but also how services interconnect with certificates, service principles, passwords, share keys, uh, that's absolutely critical. Uh, it's about having good uh, source uh, management processes, uh, especially to make sure that credentials don't show up in source code. And uh, any sort of things that even on-prem, you would never have a dev test environment, you know, share common uh, uh, credentials and other resources with a production environment. But, and that shouldn't be true in the, in the cloud at all. The key difference is that the on-premise uh, systems to uh, drive hygiene uh, haven't yet all been you know, ported over to the cloud. 
Uh, and there's a lot of good momentum of uh, Microsoft partners as well as Azure Security Center. But the key point is, if we look at the 80-20 rule, 80% is fundamentals. And those are the things that uh, red teams and real adversaries uh, focus on with success. So are there any good tools that you recommend to help with this? Is there any any favorites that you personally have or anything you'd recommend uh, that people have a look at? So from a defensive standpoint, you should probably use the tools that are are built into Azure, right? That are, are closely integrated into Azure, Azure Security Center and stuff like that. But last year we did release a tool called StormSpotter. The idea behind StormSpotter is to give you a visual representation of how your identities interact with your resources. Uh, for example, I can see if, you know, at Laurent at Microsoft.com has access to some, you know, Azure function or, or some storage account, right, which permissions I have on it. And if I have too many permissions, right, then I can go ahead and, and, and fix that from a defensive standpoint. Uh, Red Teamers can also use it, similar to other graphing tools that are out there in the industry that show how to get from one you know, one point to another, and blue teamers can use it in order to determine, okay, well, if this particular identity from this particular group is compromised, what is the biggest impact that it can have in our environment? And StormSpotter is, is very good at, at showing you the relationships between that at a very granular level from using particularly uh, Azure RBAC uh, permissions and showing you, okay, well, I have this permission on maybe on this subscription, or maybe just as a resource group, or maybe just a, a singular resource, and you can make your security decisions from there. When looking at a security career, the thought is that one has to learn about many things in order to be able to understand the different threats in an environment. What would you recommend um, for somebody uh, to get started in red teaming? Thank you for that question, because due to all the security incidents that we're seeing in the world, uh, the field of red teaming is growing. And it's really important that if you want to do this work, you start navigating your career so you can build the right technical and non-technical skills to succeed. So let's start with that first step. Now, there's going to be a large number of people listening to this podcast that is in an organization that doesn't have a red team capability. Uh, and this is a good opportunity for you to get started. So when you see a security incident that's widely reported in the media, uh, dig deep into understanding the incident. Uh, certainly there's a very large InfoSec community that goes down to the extreme details of what is known about attacks. And then take that technical knowledge and pitch the idea to your management chain that you would like to test your organization's effectiveness against a simulated adversary and you'll be executing uh, the uh, technical tools and uh, techniques that you learned about in your research. So here's where I had a very important point. It's very important that you scope your work and you get the appropriate sign-off to execute you know, red teaming activities because effectively you are breaking into computer systems and that, that's illegal. Therefore, you have to get the, uh, the appropriate sign-off for your organization. You will also want to notify any technology provider that may be in scope of your testing. So for example, if you're doing red teaming or pen testing uh, on top of uh, your infrastructure that's sitting on Azure, you want to notify Microsoft. And there's a site to do that. If you go to aka.ms slash pen test rules, it'll take you to that site where you can notify Microsoft of your activities. If you're in an organization that has a red team program, look, Ask the red team if you can work with them on an operation. Appeal to them, say, hey, here are the skills that I can bring. And there's a very good chance that your skills complement 
what they do. At that point, you can offer a very unique perspective, which ultimately will help them achieve better results. Key point, it never hurts to ask. And once you're in proximity of people that are doing red teaming on a day-to-day -day basis, you'll grow your network, you'll grow your skills, perspective, and you'll also be a more, you have better visibility to opportunities as they arise. So next, let me zoom down into some of the non-technical skills that are critical to bring. First, uh, when I'm interviewing a candidate, I look at, can this person think outside of the box? That is, given the technology or scenario, do they have the breadth of knowledge to understand the weak points that may enable exploitation? Second, is this person resourceful? You know, given any problem, can they navigate uncertainty? When, you know, given a red team objective, there is no cheat code and no path to success. Ultimately, it is for the red team operator to figure out a way using the resources that they have. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, can this person effectively communicate? Can they drive change? So red teams can find issues, and there's a lot of red teamers that are very good at that. But the true value is being part of the fix. This requires that you have the ability to engage others in a positive and productive way, even during a hot security situation. So if you ever find yourself in a red team interview, make sure you reflect on these non-technical skills. Okay, so now let's talk on the tech side, what's important. Now, I'm talking from the perspective of Azure, which is a development platform. Other environments will be different. So when we're interviewing someone for the Azure Red Team, since it's a development platform, first question is, are they a good engineer? Are they a good developer? Because in that background, for that this Azure context, those people will have a good perspective on identifying vulnerabilities and then being part of the fixed side of the equation. Second, does the, their experience complement the experience of others on the team? There isn't much value in having a red team filled with everyone with the same background and skills. So red teaming is truly a field where diversity is essential and directly translates to the quality of findings. And third, and finally, does this person have a good security foundation? Do you understand identity, encryption, network, and operating systems? If you have the good foundation, you can build on top of that because every red team operation is unique. Having a broad set of skills allows you to link together different technologies that you'll, you encounter and then understand those integration points, which are ultimately the most likely path to successful exploitation. So look at a red team career like a red team operation. That is. You have to do some reconnaissance, you have to grow your toolbox so you can get that initial uh, attack position. And then once you've achieved that position, as in you're hired into a red team role, uh, continue building out your assets, building out your knowledge, and be part of both the find part of the equation as well as the fix. So also from a getting started perspective, let me point out two capture the flag style experiences that allow you to build up skills in a safe environment. First. A very common one, Hack the Box, which is at hackthebox.eu. And secondly, Azure Red Team has published a CTF called Convex at github.com slash Azure slash Convex, C-O-N-V-E-X. So Convex is a great tool because it will introduce you to the most effective techniques that we use as an Azure Red Team and start you on your journey to think like an attacker. You know, you hit on a really interesting point, um, and that is this notion of thinking like an attacker. I would, I would argue that if you're a manager 
and let's say you have some developers working for us, some engineering staff, and you notice that some of them kind of seem to have that mindset and seem to be able to think in a more adversarial manner. Uh, it may be worthwhile, you know, helping grow those people's careers in the security space. And I say that to be quite selfish, actually, in as much as there is a dearth of people, uh, you know, coming into cybersecurity. Um, and so if you find yourself working with people who seem to be very good at it, who think about things from an adversarial perspective, then you really need to be grooming them into positions uh, in red teaming, blue teaming, whatever, but certainly in security spaces. So, yeah, 100% agree on that. So one question we always ask our guests at the end of the podcast is, if you had just one point you'd like to leave our listeners with, uh, what would it be? So my one point would be uh, from a blue team perspective, and that is to focus on uh, detecting reconnaissance activity in the cloud. A very important quote from John Lambert, who talks about uh, you know attackers thinking in graphs and defenders thinking in lists. You know, over time, I think everyone's thinking in graphs right now, but the key differentiator that I see from with attackers and the attackers that do well from ones that don't is that uh, the better ones know the value of the assets that they seize. Within the cloud, if you have an asset, when I say asset, I mean like a certificate or a password or a service principle or uh, a foothold on a particular machine that you're able to compromise uh, via uh, a vulnerability. You have to do recon. You have to understand the value of that. And in that uh, there is a lot of loud activity that can allow the blue team to detect faster. So uh, from a blue team perspective, focus on recon. From an attacker perspective, it's something, recon is something you're going to have to do. Uh, since that's very early uh, in the attack process, uh, it is probably the lowest cost opportunity to understand if you're under attack and take the appropriate response. So Craig and Laurent, thank you so much for turning up this week. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know I learned a few things and I hope our listeners did too. And with that, I'd like to bring this episode to an end. Thank you all of you for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.